0: Okay, everybody, we're back with an amazing episode of Angel Season 7. And by now, you probably know the theme for this season is three cycle investors. That's the term I've dubbed VCs and angels who have been investing or operating through the dot com bubble, through the great recession, through the 14 year bull run, and they're still going in 2023. Today we have a great interview with first marks Rick Heitzman. He started investing back in 1999, right before the dot com bubble burst and He started first mark capital in 2008 we go deep on shaking off the 14-year bull run and how startups can sober up and get back to reality plus airbnb's brilliant reaction to the COVID downturn he's an investor and reminiscing on the problems from the dot-com bubble and how they were solved and eventually worked out finally we talk about how senior members of startup teams have to act as shock absorbers i love this term investors founders how we act as shock absorbers during difficult times calm things down create plans and then help companies survive downturns. It's a great episode, stick with us.
1: This Week in Startups is brought to you by LinkedIn
0: Jobs. A business is only as strong as its people and every hire matters. Post your first job for free at linkedin.com slash angel. Brokers Startup Insurance Program helps startups secure the most important types of insurance at a lower cost, and with less hassle. Save up to 20% off of traditional insurance today at embrokercom slash twist. While you're there, get an extra 10% off using offer code twist. And letterhead helps you create, send, and monetize your email newsletters. Twist listeners get 50% off their first year And qualified startups can get 75% off their first two years at tryletterhead.com slash twist. All right, everybody. Next up on our series for Angel Season 7 is Rick Heitzman, and he has been a venture capitalist and entrepreneur for all three cycles, starting with the dot-com boom and bust cycle. Then we had the web 2.0 cycle. And now we've lived through um, what I'm calling the speculative asset bubble. Uh, but I'm not sure how you qualify this bull run. How do you think about this past bull run we've just been through and welcome to the program? And what do you think the attributes are of this latest boom bust cycle?
1: Yeah, Hey, Jason, thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of the show. And it's great being here. Um, so yeah, as you know, I've, you know, old guy, like, like some of our friends who've seen Seen this movie a couple times before. I like, I haven't heard the speculative asset bubble, but, that, but that's, you know, that's exactly what happened of, you know, zero interest rates, no cost of capital. Um, and, you know, what happens in that world that people only, um, hypothesize about at University of Chicago, you know, up until about three years ago. And, you know, what, what we've seen is, you know, every, all the bad behaviors, that you could imagine did happen of uh, money raised too early, sloshed around too quickly and too speculative assets. And you know, people forgot that capital had a cost. So whether you're a founder investing in a project, whether you're a founder buying a company, whether you're a founder hiring people, you don't really feel think about the cost of that as you're doing your own analysis because capital is free. And I could always go get more capital from uh, the the growth fund tree. Um, in in two or three days. So why me worry? And I think the, you know, therefore, rampant speculation, and and no cost of capital, therefore, um, no consequence. And now I think we're living in an age of consequence.
0: And when folks who are in this, no consequence bubble for too long, what starts to cloud their thinking? And then what do they need to recognize in order to get to have the fog lift because it does seem like some of them have been living a delusion, in fact, yep. of how business works in the world. And now they're having to face that reality in a very short period of time. I mean this flips. When it does flip, it seems to flip very quickly.
1: I can completely flip quickly. It's a way, great way to frame it. Um you know we've been talking about it for over a year now. Or, you know, around the partners table here at Firstmark. They you know, start to see the cracks of the of the bubble Summer of 2021, and then you know into the October November season, you were starting to see real things unfurl, Um, and you saw it in the public markets first, and you saw a very rapid change from growth at all costs to unit economics profitability and a sense of sobriety, Uh, and the party ended there. You know, even before the end of 2021, and you know as we've talked about, it often takes a while for the the signal from the out, you know, the frontier of the public markets to reach back into the private markets. Um, you know, whether you're in Silicon Valley or New York City, it's a, it's just sometimes a different world. And you know, I I, de- I definitely felt like I was a, a sponsor trying to sober people up for most of 2022 at my board meetings. Of this is not temporal. You know, maybe what we just experienced in 2020 and 2021 was temporal, but this is actually going back to reality. So as you're sobering Mm -hmm. up, you're going back to reality. This is the way it's going to be and the way it always was. And the new reality is not the fictitious land, but that's the old fictitious land. And it was hard. It was hard for a couple of reasons. It was hard because it was so easy during that time. And frankly, a lot of the founders you work with and I work with hadn't seen even two cycles, let alone all the things that we've seen over the last 20 plus years.
0: Yeah, and that really is the... Hardest thing for people to accept is that this peak market was not reality, and this sober market is reality. It's almost right. like they're um, they have to give away this dream that they could at any point in time just call any venture capitalist in a growth fund and have their valuation go up and raise more money. Uh, yeah. They and would it, have and the- to actually show them metrics that would qualify them to get more money, yeah. and yes. it was a
1: qualification. Yeah, I mean going back to you have to earn your keep. And the, the, the ability to earn your keep by creating value was a, a fundamental concept in the history of the world up until a couple of years ago. And I think the the other thing that we saw was it was a head fake was you know, we got people um pretty concerned and pretty sober when COVID broke out. So if mm-hmm. you if you remember you know, almost all entrepreneurs remember, you know, March of 2020, where we said, hey, we don't know what's happening. Markets down 30 40%. Let's, let's think about it before we spend too much money. And you know, having seen this before, we thought that was going to be a longer correction. But you know, two, three months later, the market was back and stronger than ever. And I, we did, frankly, get some pushback from some founders saying, hey, you, you, you told us to hit the brakes when COVID hit, and we should have hit the gas. Are you sure we should hit the brakes now? Or are we going to miss an opportunity to accelerate in case this is short term? And I said, you know, no, this is not like that. That, was, that Again, that was an aberration of the government going to 0% interest to, to fight COVID. This isn't an aberration of adjusting the historical mean interest rates and returns and market multiples. It, one of the companies
0: you invested in, Airbnb, seems to have done a great job. Uh, and again, you make large investments uh, mm-hmm. in later stage. So you did a, a late stage investment, I think, in Airbnb. Um. They took dramatic action very quickly. Maybe yes. you could talk a little bit about uh, you know, first-time founders like Brian um, and Joe taking really decisive action in that case.
1: And they had a strong board and a strong group of advisors. I mean, they have a um, amazingly a very crowded boardroom back when people used to have in-person board meetings with a lot of the best people um, in venture. So um, they got great advice from everyone from Peter Thiel to, to Jeff Jordan and what was going on in the world. But I think the key thing that you said there was decisive. So, you know, it was, and, you know, they saw, hey, the, uh, leading indicator, China was, China was had, had negative sales, basically, in the early months of 2020. And if this, and if this were to continue, and we kept our head in the sand, there's an existential crisis, for a company who is generating, you know, billions of dollars of, of netting, of potentially billions of dollars in net income in 2020, we have to buy insurance. And they did the right thing by going to Silver Lake and Sixth Street, or uh, Sixth Street, and getting you know, a couple of billion dollars of insurance. Then, despite getting the insurance, they also did the right thing by executing efficiently—you know, taking costs out of their business, getting lean, getting focused—and therefore, they never touched that capital. They bought insurance mm-hmm. that ne- that they never came to pass. And you know, I, I tell that story, and founders like, well, you know. That's, does that mean it's stupid to buy insurance? I'm like, you know, my house hasn't burned down. It doesn't mean I, I, I feel like I, I'm, I'm stupid for not having homeowner's insurance.
0: Well, and it gave them great optionality, but they had really uh, kicked in the austerity measures. They did the riff. They made a major cut, sort of Uber, other mm-hmm. companies during that time. So they learned to get fit before the yeah. doc- before this uh, you know, speculative asset bubble burst. So they were kind of prepared for hey this is how to right size the company for the opportunity and and both those businesses have our marketplaces yeah it's one of the really interesting dynamics where you could speak to how marketplaces are able to react maybe a little bit better in a down market than some other businesses and,
1: and we've been, we've been in a lot of marketplaces we're first investors in Pinterest we're in StubHub we're in Upwork so both B two B and B two C marketplaces the benefit they have you know even an Airbnb compared to a Marriott is that they don't own anything. So theoretically, you, you know, you're an asset light opportunity and therefore most of your costs for better or worse are on people. And therefore mm-hmm. your initiatives are initiatives around people. Number one cost, number two cost is marketing and number three costs are fixed costs are harder to get out of. But if you think about if your cost of capital increases like it has in the last 18 months, Therefore, your return on those people has to increase. So you can't have the same number of people, the same marketing spend if that were to happen. So in the case of Airbnb, you could titrate down your, your marketing spend as quickly as possible. You could think about what people do you need? And you don't have a huge fixed cost level. Um, like you would, especially if you're an asset heavy business like a Marriott or, or a car company where we you're actually buying physical things and therefore that should be not only the best business, as you know, on the upside in terms of margin structure and a true use of the internet, but also a great business to protect yourself on the downside.
0: Yeah, marketplaces seem to be one of the business models that produces a high margin. And I think a lot of people got asset heavy, Mm -hmm. maybe during this um, period of time with zero interest rates. The march to 1 billion members continues for LinkedIn, which is now at 875 million executives. There is no business network on the planet that comes close to LinkedIn. So if you are a small business owner or you manage hiring at your company, you know, your success in 2023 is 100% dependent on your team and you wanna surround yourself with great, motivated, skilled people. And that's why you have to check out LinkedIn jobs. It's really simple. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find more qualified candidates, more efficiently. That's right, better candidates, faster. That's what we're all looking for, right? LinkedIn does this by matching your open roles with the people who have the skills, values, and experience to help achieve your goals. And with almost a billion people on LinkedIn, think about the global talent pool you're tapping into. I mean, these are the best of the best. And I can speak from personal experience. LinkedIn Jobs just works better than all the other hiring platforms out there. We've got some of our most amazing contributors at launch and inside from linkedin and they have amazing targeting screening and rating tools so you can do all that organization inside of linkedin and that's why small businesses rate linkedin jobs number one delivering quality hires versus leading competitors so post your job for free at linkedin.com angel that's linkedin.com a-n-g-e-l to post your first job for free terms and conditions do apply let's go back in time to the Mm -hmm. dot-com boom bust cycle what were you doing then Mm -hmm. and when it did blow up in that spring of 2020 what did you think as a younger (laughs) rick yes uh, and you follow rick on the twitter he's at rick he's part of the first name club he got me beat by one character at jason and rick Mm -hmm. you're gonna mention us both when you
1: (laughs) well it'll be it'll be a very small group at the bar of of the first name clubs um So uh you know what what was I doing in the first bubble so I I uh you know got into venture capital in the mid 90s as I saw, I thought this internet thing might have some legs and so got involved um in venture capital you know any way possible was you know early in the mid 90s out in Silicon Valley and then in New York um you know on the early edges so along with you and guys like Fred Wilson and Jerry Colonna um you know pushing the flag then and then you know as the market started to turn in March of 2020 I actually w- went the went the other way and, and I, I took a leave from venture capital and went and started a business. And I thought it was, uh, mm-hmm. um, I might've been wrong about it because capital was so hard to come by, um, okay. but, you know, went and founded a business called First Advantage. Um, which and did you do that after the bust or right before the bust? Right after the bust.
0: Got it. But what was it like as a venture capitalist during that heyday? Yep. And then what were the lessons when it sort of collapsed and, and how bad was it?
1: It was bad. Compared to I, what I, we're going through now. Yeah. I think it was worse then. Um, it'd be interesting to see if, you know, as you're doing the cycle with, with people like yeah. Brad and yourself, do you think it was worse then? It might have been because we were younger and, and we didn't have as many scars to protect us, but it, it felt much worse and it felt much more jagged that it was, you know, champagne launch parties one day and telling people they have to cut half the company the next day. I felt yeah. like there wasn't enough, there wasn't enough capital in the system to have these companies financed well enough, or to you know to get people from here to there, there were a lot of hard shutdowns where you know the severance is is your is your computer or you know take a printer on the way out the door. If yeah, so, literally, it,
0: people would be given an Aeron chair and just said, you know, we can't pay you any severance, yeah. but just take the chair and your a, laptop. That, and that, that's, that's we're
1: rolling their chi- their, their yeah, boxes down, down, home. Down, down, down Park Avenue South. That was yeah. That that's was what a, they were doing before social media would have that would have been an incredible. Uh, TikTok, <laughs> side, TikTok now uh, outside of yeah. some of the headquarters, that were seeing layoffs. But it, it wasn't, it wasn't even layoffs. It was hey, the, we we wish we could do better for, by you, but there's just no more money. And you know those companies were capital intensive enough and underfunded enough hmm. that when the capital left the system, there, it was hard shutdowns. Ah, you know, we shut down a bunch of companies. I was fighting with Silicon Valley Bank of, you know, whether or not I get to give. You know as a board member to get printers to go to as people as severance or they're gonna take the printers back because we owed them capital and we were just out of money so I think the number of hard shutdowns were were uh, were much more dramatic many more people felt like lost their jobs with with a, a much smaller cushion so I think that was the much harder time than what we're seeing today assuming that we're you know getting close to bouncing on the bottom yeah and then It didn't
0: stop bottoming. I mean, that was the other thing I remember from that era was just when you thought like, hey, this couldn't get any worse. It just kept getting worse because a lot of the companies, let's face it, they didn't have a path to profitability. They were incredibly speculative. In a way, they were similar to crypto companies where they were experimenting and building products. They had been funded, but probably not properly funded in all cases, but there was no, in many cases, revenue or customer base. For them to fall back to, whereas Uber or Postmates or Airbnb, mm-hmm. uh, even Coinbase in this cycle, yeah. they, they had some base Robinhood, they had, they some had a base business. number they of customers that had, they had some, real business. They had
1: yeah. then and, and they were able to right-size their business to their revenue. You know, it's hard to right-size your business in 1999 or 2000 to eyeballs. Yeah. And, and so, therefore... You know, at least there was a, there. We know that there's a business there and all those businesses, even some of the crypto business, there's a business there. Mm-hmm. We just don't know how big it would be. So you could adjust your expenses to that. And then I think people don't really remember, you know, there was several you know punches in the face it was, things cracked in March. And then that fall was a huge fall from Greece in the fall of 2020 or, 20, or 2000. And the market was down 30, 40 percent in the public markets. And then things started to feel like they did now in the beginning of 01. And we're rattling along the bottom. And then September 11th happened. Right. And, then and market, people don't understand that one-two punch was just a knockout. Yeah. Because then the
0: market lost all faith in Anything. this is the end of the world. Yeah. Yes.
1: And I mean, much, wor- yeah, much worse from a, a bunch of different perspectives than even the pandemic because it was so sudden, so unexpected. Market drops 30% and there was no rebound. There was no interest rates easing that could ease either the economic or, or the pain that a lot of people suffered.
0: So when we look at this speculative asset bubble bursting, then we have some unknowns. Ukraine, Taiwan, yep. there are risk factors out there. So if one of and this is where a weak economy, a weak balance sheet for the country, yep. a weak balance sheet for your own private company, this could be particularly dangerous, because if another uh, black swan type event happens yeah. something that's completely unexpected that you've never seen before definition of a black swan mm-hmm. that could be um you know cataclysmic for a lot of companies no
1: I, compl- I i agree i mean there's the thing that's most scary in this market or everyone's asking is it over yet right i mean people people have had their heads down maybe they even raised enough money in 2021 they two or three years of cash and now they mm-hmm. might have a year of cash in the beginning of 2023 and they're asking, is it over yet? Because you know, I'd like to raise money in Q2 or the second half of 23, and I, I don't think we could safely say it's over yet. I think we have to say, you know, we believe it's bouncing on the bottom. We believe, and you know, we're taping this on a Wednesday afternoon where just earnings just started to be announced, and Microsoft announced you know weak guidance. So we believe that you know there might be a recession in the cards, which could mean a further step down. Let alone. All these black swans, which could occur on a, on a political um, or, or macroeconomic basis, which could completely destabilize the system.
0: Yeah, so best advice for founders, while they're looking at the situation, they've got themselves to 18 months of runway, they've got a core team that's lean, that's really focused, maybe they've got a lot of headwinds, customers are canceling accounts or downsizing deals but they're still in the game. They yep. still have revenue. They've got, you know, maybe a reasonable path to break even in 18 or 24 months. They've done the rifts. What, what do you say to that lean startup? How should they operate now that they got that 18 months, 24 months of runway? And how do they keep the troops excited and engaged during this down market?
1: So I think that's probably three questions. Uh, yeah, the first part of it is and you know, when I was an operator you know after September uh September 11th and revenue dropped 93 percent um mm-hmm. and we thought we had we were cash flow positive and then we realized we had uh we probably had about 38 days of cash um at the end of 2001 that um I'm, that scar tissue that scarring is pretty deep so if you can control financing risk and if you can control your path to cash flow break even don't do anything to f- like you know, you know, that is your most important job as a CEO of being able to be default alive and being able to get from here to there with the cash you have. And you know, don't speculate on when a market window would open or, or when financing might turn back on if you believe you have a path to cash flow break even. When you have that path to cash flow break even, you actually become much more attractive to everybody because then you know people know that there's there's at least a floor to what's going to happen with this business and therefore you're investing for growth. So you know, it might be counterintuitive to those founders, but getting the cash flow even in this market might be the number one milestone, which would make you more attractive to get capital. So thinking about that milestone and being really tight on those milestones to get from here to there.
0: So if you were faced with growing 2x year over year, but being unprofitable for growing 1x year over year, or let's say 1.2x, yeah. 20% over last year, but you hit break even, the latter scenario is the more attractive scenario for capital allocators.
1: It's, no, it's a no-brainer. It's a, it's a no-brainer because you want to control your own destiny. You want to mm-hmm. be in control, a master of your domain. You can get from here to there with the capital you have, be default alive, and then you could always accelerate behind your own profitability. And as a a CEO, and I remember this, apparently, like, you know, once you have to spend a huge chunk of your time, with you know, concerned about this existential risk around financing, and that's off your shoulder, you know, you have much more degrees of freedom to think and, and worry about creating the most valuable business you can.
0: I've been dealing with business insurance for three decades, I am on the board of a bunch of companies, I watch people who don't have insurance, get themselves into trouble all the time. Switching providers has always been a nightmare. It's too expensive, takes too much time. And often, it doesn't even guarantee better coverage. But now, You can make switching radically simple with Embroker. Yes, Embroker is the perfect destination for industry-tailored commercial insurance. It's business insurance specifically for startups. Embroker's single application helps startups get four quotes, one, two, three, four, for four lines of coverage in just 15 minutes. They connect you with one of their expert brokers for unmatched service that goes beyond your policy. And listen, Embroker is such an amazing product. I use it. A lot of my startups use it. It's so easy to use. So try Embroker today with code TWIST and get 10% off their startup package at Imbroker.com slash TWIST. That's E-M-B-R-O-K-E-R.com slash T-W-I-S-T and use the code TWIST so you get that 10% off. It's meaningful. Every dollar counts right now. We love you, Embroker. Thank you so much for supporting this podcast for so many years. Let's talk about this sort of fallacy around... Um, acquiring customers and the cost to acquiring customers. What have you learned over this last cycle about um, the actual real cost of acquiring customers and, you know, the lifetime value of customers? Because it seems that maybe founders got, and even capital allocators, maybe got a little Mm -hmm. cute, (laughs) or maybe disconnected from reality in terms of the cost of acquiring a customer.
1: I think the the cost to acquire a customer was always moving around more than folks would have guessed. And, and you know, a lot of people thought from period to period, from this quarter, this is what we could spend on Facebook. Unknowingly, that 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 cost of a customer changes on Facebook for a minute-to-minute basis. But I think the fallacy, to your point, is based in, the, in LTV, that people thought their LTV models were great. They were bulletproof. I'm going to hold this customer for five years. I'm going to be able to increase price. They might buy one or two other things from me. Not knowing that the person adjacent to you on uh, on the other side is also counting that customer, and they're also looking at your profit stream as their potential upsell, and therefore we've seen you know churn be higher than almost any LTV model has, has calculated, and you know your ability to grow be decreased compared to those LTV models. So CAC is something you have to pay today, and and probably less controllable than you guess. LTV is wildly speculative. And I think entrepreneurs get that wrong way too much.
0: Lifetime value is, yeah, defining that becomes pretty hard, especially when you have a down market like this. I don't think anybody's LTVs took into account that a lot of your customers might be going out of business, or they might be doing a layoff. And when you do a layoff, that typically comes after you've looked at every other line item, and reduced every other line item. So you're going to, when you see all these rifts happening, you can be sure that they've riffed accounting software or HR software, SaaS or, or software. maybe not.
1: Sometimes they're on other sides of it. Sometimes the first yeah. thing is, hey, we have our contract. That contract's not up till March. We got to mm. get, you know, if you're the companies, hey, we're riffing people at the end of the year. We're announcing at the beginning of the year, we're going to give them the holidays, and then we're going to go through it. But then we're going to look at every single line item. And, you know, that accounting software, we don't have a hundred people in accounting anymore. We have 50 people accounting. We're not paying for those five chairs. We're not re up, you know, we're not resigning with you. And by the way, the other, this other vendor we use for FP and a analysis said they give you what we're doing for free. So in a world where the last five year actuals were saying my customers are growing seats by 10%, they're not pushing back on price and they might be open for an upsell. All three of those assumptions might be wrong. Yeah,
0: wow. Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a lot of mistakes in one math equation.
1: Well, that are compounding, right? And if you think yeah. about how that compounds over a five-year life of a customer, it dramatically uh, Im- impacts the math.
0: All right, let's talk about uh, the emotional state of the employee base <laughs> and yes. founders because you know, as capital allocators, we're placing bets on humans and teams yeah. to go out there and, and to fight through this this has been quite a slog 2022 people getting thrown in the deep end of the ice cold pool and uh, you know but now it seems like okay if the company is still alive in 2023 okay there's an opportunity for them to thrive if they can get through this how do you keep the esprit de corps going how do you keep people focused especially founders right who might be looking at the situation and just saying you know what i'm exhausted i don't know if i can do this anymore I'm, i'm on a lot of Zooms with exhausted people yeah. these days. I don't know if so, you're uh, having the that body, same experience. Body
1: language is really tough. Um, I think, you know, my friend uh, Neil Blumenthal uh, from Warby has this great analogy that the further you are up in an organization, the more you have to be a shock absorber. So uh. I think, you know, the thing for us as board members, advisors, investors, we hopefully are shock absorbers to those founders who are getting whipsawed by the market, the financing market, they're losing big customers. And you know, I think differently. And one of the things I learned by being, you know, much more junior twenty years ago is <laughs> I saw a lot of board members who were holes, when things were going wrong. They were pouring gasoline on the fire instead of you know doing their job of being a mature person who can absorb those shocks and be able to provide a-, a calming influence to the room. And then you know hopefully that passes on from your advisors or your board members down to the CEO and that senior team as you know rank and file employees are saying hey my next door neighbor just got laid off my brother-in-law just got laid off am i next let's go to the water cooler let's go for a walk around the block for a coffee and let's not do work today and let's just be stressed about what's going to the existential crisis of the company we're at the the job of that senior team is then to say hey we're going to be shock absorbers for the organization we're going to do it in a transparent way if we're doing layoffs we're going to be transparent we're going to try and be Kind of even keeled from an emotional perspective, and get from here to there. C- certain times, no different than any other relationship. You have to have even keeled. But then when they talk to their board, hopefully, you know, you're, you're passing, uh, you're, you're you're playing past the hat with that emotional bag. But you know, we're telling founders, you know, the the reality is, it feels like we're going to be bouncing around the bottom for all of twenty three. So you know, kind of setting expectations. And we're not setting expectations that tomorrow. Interest rates are going to drop, the market's going to rip, and we're going to be out of this like it's a bad dream. This, this is going to take some time. Um, and it you know, it goes back to the old Stockdale syndrome of like being being very aware of the current reality it lets you enable enables you to absorb that reality better. So, hey, founder, this is really hard. We know it was tough. You had to, you know, lay off a couple hundred people or a couple thousand people, depending on who you are. That sucks. I'll absorb some of that stress for you. But let's be clear and transparent. We think this is. Yeah, we're in the fourth inning or fifth inning still, maybe. This might take a long time, even before what could be these negative black swans coming out of nowhere. We don't know what the catalyst will be on the upside. So we think we've taken our medicine, we've gotten lean, we've gotten fit, but we still might have another 14 miles to run in this marathon. But we we do believe, being at the same time optimistic of, we do believe that you could finish this marathon and there's going to be a lot of people that drop, and if you win, there's going to be a huge gold ring there for you.
0: Yeah, the prize for the people who survive is not insignificant. And I really think the shock absorber concept is super important in leadership because yes. it is very easy to lose your cool. It is very hard for some people to accept the fact that their billion dollar company or their $5 billion value company is now worth 500 million, but accept it, you must. There is no other choice. And if you have to get to profitability or break even or within spinning distance, in order to get funded, that's what you need to do. So that is the job of leadership. And there's no reason to freak out about it, or to be cantankerous. Sometimes you just have to accept reality and make a plan. And uh, I wonder, when you look at your portfolio, and who are the the shining examples of people who were able to and and what lessons did they teach you of, hey, just let's face reality, you know, over all three cycles, What lessons did you learn and and from whom uh, on how to deal with this unique level of stress? It is unique. And it's, you know, when you're a leader and everything's coming up roses, like it's great. Yeah. High fives all around. Everybody's options are worth more. When everybody's stock options are worth less. Yeah.
1: When everyone's getting rich, it's easy to, it's easy to lead. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think there, there are a couple of great examples. I remember you know early and from 20 years ago, um, there was a founder, Jeff Flor, who's still an active angel investor and even a venture capitalist at Kraft today. But he was the founder and CEO of StubHub, which was yeah. Liquid Seats. You know, had a great launch party with the 49ers and the, and the Raiders when, back when they were in Oakland to launch Liquid Seats. And he had to get really lean. I, I forget how much, what percent of the company he took out, but yeah, you know, well in excess of 50%. Down to the fact, I think him and a couple people were basically keeping the lights on when they pivoted to becoming StubHub. And then they were very capital efficient. You know, I think we were the only institutional investor. I think they used very little of our capital and they just grew behind their own success. And it was, hey, I don't want to look anywhere else in terms of what I need. I'm going to be very self-deterministic. I'm going to set very strict milestones and I'm going to spend behind my own success. Because I have such deep belief in that my business is going to work, and I think he was a great leader and a great entrepreneur at that time. Uh, I, I think you're right that the guys at Airbnb did a great job. Probably say an underreported one might be uh, Zach Roteno at Rowe and Roman Health. Um, that he, you know, we we talked going into the financial, uh, going into kind of this change and everything. He we saw the writing on the wall in October, November. You know, not everybody saw the writing on the wall. We are able to raise capital in December of 2021 to buy insurance before insurance got very expensive. And then by um, January or February of, of 2022, we had already ripped up the approved budget and said, hey, the budget we did in October, November, December of 2021 is irrelevant now. The cost of capital has changed so much. And our milestones and metrics have such different levels. We're going to just rip up the whole budget and start new and mm-hmm. say, you know, we think the cost of capital is going to be this. We think the cost of customer acquisition is going to be this. And we think these are the milestones we have to hit to achieve a bigger, better business. And we also know we want to have this much cushion when we break even. So we bought insurance. We might not even use that insurance, but we're going to... Be able to run the business like we're never seeing a dime of capital, and we're going to readjust things like unit economics, profitability, CAC, and LTV to a very conservative level, so we know we're hitting those milestones. And you know, frankly, they took a bunch of people out of the business in order to do it because you had to. You couldn't run as many projects because the key word of the of the time was focus. And yeah. you know, they were doing this over a year ago when when a lot of people you know were still trying to figure out you know if you know is is this just a blip what's really going on is you know is it still the glory days of 2021 that they acted decisively they acted with a rallying cry to the troops of this is a time of focus this is a time of leadership here's how we're reorienting the business clearly and transparency, com- transparently communicating and doing one big riff that says hey, here's our core team and we're going to be able to achieve greatness with it
0: yeah, yeah. and then when they they were I don't, I don't believe they went public but there was a lot of talk of them going public and that's hard because you have an employee base a team base that thinks hey there's some big liquidation or event happening i could yeah. you know, potentially be able to sell my stuff and so shares um and to be able to reset that is never easy maybe you could talk about the most horrendous horrific term sheets that came in during the dot-com era yep. the liquidation preferences the recaps the complete wipe out of the cap table and the resetting of the cap table and then what you're seeing in today's market because so i'm starting to have um a little ptsd from the yes. first time around and i'm starting to see some people come in and say hey you know i'll fund this company um, at you know x millions of dollar valuation yep. and everybody before it is going to be whatever a low single yeah. digit percentage of the cap table. Um, talk about these, what some people might say are predatory. Some people might see the best deal of best deal available. It's the most charitable yeah, I mean, way of looking at it's, it. Yeah.
1: It's, it's kind of two sides of the same coin, depending on what side you're, you're offering. You know, what we, we saw before was, you know, there was five X off the top liquidation preferences, right? Where it's like, I'm going to get five times my money before anyone gets a dime. And wow. you know, people had to take that then because there was, you know, there was, you know, it was, you know, even if it was for a million dollars, because you got to keep the lights on. It was, it was the, it was the the lender of last resort, which always has draconian terms. Uh, I think one of my lessons from that was I was always saying, "Whatever it takes to keep the lights on," and I think that didn't work out for anybody because everyone was was pissed. Everyone's like, "Hey, mm. you know, you're, you're you're taking my company for pennies on the dollar." At some point, it feels more like your company than my company. I'm not going to be my your employee because I hate you for just stealing my company. So right. I'm out, and there was no incentive for management to stay in place. And th- those deals almost always fail. Um, you know, we're starting to see nothing like that. But we're starting to see multiple liquidation preferences. You know, we've seen deals at two and a half x off the top. We've seen deals at two x off the top. We've seen participating preferred for those of you who remember that. Um, even in normal financing rounds, and obviously we're seeing down rounds. Um, I think some of those things are normal and that you're, you know, you, you, for companies that might've been overvalued to do a down round and figuring out and a couple of our companies have done back down rounds. It's not the end of the world because going back to that irrational bubble that we lived in, those were irrational valuations. And you probably, if you normalize it, you know, you're probably going to have to take some dilution. And you should be happy that you're able to raise money in 2021 at an irrational price, rather than viewing this as irrational. Um, we haven't seen, um, you know, the terrible down rounds that are just, you know, you know, uh, spine crushing to management teams and founders. We haven't seen yet. We don't know if that's coming, but um, hopefully, folks have learned from the past that it, you know, if you if you crush a team's spirit you know, th- it's not going to be the right thing for anybody in the business.
0: Yeah, that is the challenge. Somebody comes along, they want to put a million dollars into this business, but, you know, nobody else will invest and they they ratchet up the terms yeah. where they get five times their million dollars and they wipe out the existing cap table. Now They've just got all this toxicity around the cap table. And the and founders... No one cares. And, and no one cares.
1: And nobody's, nobody's got, uh, yeah, nobody's vested in the business anymore. No vested, And I think what you want to do and you know, we've done some a little bit of structure so far, and some follow-on rounds with our companies. Um, you know, obviously, w- whatever it takes to incent someone, and especially if you think that's the last round until you break even, because you know there's downstream effects if you put a bunch of structure in. It's almost impossible to raise capital later, you know, mm-hmm. because it's so hard to figure out what the waterfall looks like. But then the other side is, you know, if you're if you're going to be so greedy, you're taking all the economics, and there's not much less for everyone else. Um, yeah, people won't care slash, you know, they'll, they'll actually feel ill, Ill towards you and that's not going to work for anyone.
0: Is there a solution for these rounds to thread the needle where the new money gets some extra consideration, but oh. everybody stays incentivized? How do you, yeah. how do you manage it?
1: I mean, we've done, uh, we haven't done it in this cycle. We've done other cycles like, Hey, we're, here's the cap table. We know what it's work, You know, we know what the pie, the pie is set. How do we? How, and you know, all these cap tables, whether or not you you sign documents and got these huge legal documents, take forever. We're all kind of written in pencil, right? Like you could always say, hey, if we want to keep management incentive, we could give them X percent of the company. Early investors, you took a risk, you get this percent of the company. The new guys need this percent of the company. Existing investors get the rest. And in generally, hopefully, there's enough value there that it seems fair to everybody. And that's that's the kind of the key thing of How do you make sure everybody's vested in the long-term success of the business? Because once people stop caring, that's when, you know, the business is, you know, loses its mojo and then it's, it's, it's off, off and then you're off.
0: You know, I'm in the email newsletter business. I got a bunch of newsletters at inside the launch ticker, my personal email list. I love email. And email is the best way to source crucial first-party data and build amazing relationships with your users. And what really matters is how your community grows, engages over time, and two, how to convert that engagement into revenue, right? So you want to grow your community, get that engagement, but then you got to turn it into revenue. Well, if you're in the newsletter game, you're always trying to grow your open rates, your subscribers, and your revenue. Let me tell you about Letterhead. Letterhead helps companies keep their customers and prospects engaged and they do that with turnkey newsletters built from their existing content, audience, and data. They're going to help you create, send, and monetize your newsletters and Letterhead will help you increase engagement and ROI with personalized guidance. They know what they're doing. So Twist listeners will get 50% off their first year at tryletterhead.com/twist and qualified startups can get 75% off their first 2 years at tryletterhead.com slash twist. Go ahead and check it out. If you're not doing newsletters, you're missing out on one of the best ways to build a deep and meaningful business relationship with your constituents, and then eventually convert them into customers. When we look at exits, uh, there were an opportunity to sell in secondary uh, in a lot of these companies during the 2020-21 period. There were SPACs, there was an ability to do direct listings, we had a lot of options of how to get liquidity. Did you take advantage of that? Do you regret not taking advantage of that? How does that inform you in the future? You know, as a as a fund manager.
1: Yeah. yeah. So, in largely, you know, most of our investments are early stage, right? So we have you know long periods of illiquidity. Um, you know, obviously the secondary markets were just starting to develop that time period, but we even in you know 2020 and 2021, we view there as being a lot of levers to uh, to getting liquid. Obviously, M and A is is always the, the most prominent for all technology companies. Traditional IPO. SPACs, direct listings, and private secondary shares. and we did all of them all uh, mm-hmm. through 2020 and 2021 because you know our our belief is you know you can't eat IRR, and you you basically your job as an early stage investor is to return capital in a profitable way to your investors, and I don't think anybody any of my institutional LPs are, are relying me to get every last dollar. They want us to drive great returns um, and get and provide them the capital back. So we you know, we were we were early in using the secondary market. Uh we were early in using SPACs and we had a couple of companies go public via SPAC, including DraftKings, which had a great run. Um, and then obviously traditional IPOs with things like Airbnb. Um, and so obviously we wish we had done more. Obviously, yeah, you know, um, you know, the definition of a bear market is you wish we would have sold more yesterday. Um yeah. so you know, we wish we would have done more, but I think what's the lesson that we're going to take going forward is I think the companies, and I'm involved in several companies who are hopefully the next set of uh, of public companies, companies like Grow and Discord, and companies that public investors are excited about once that market reopens. But you know, being able to have those companies manage their cap table, um, mm-hmm. and they're going to need to provide liquidity. On a regular basis for either early investors or founders through tenders or other mechanisms, they're going to need to be more transparent in how they do that and whether they use Carta or some other way to have, Hey, we think that, you know, it's going to take us a long time to go from my seed investment to being public. I think at Pinterest, it took us, you know, 12 years plus to go from the first institutional investor to being public. Um, and therefore not only for us who probably has a portfolio, but for that you know, for the early employees, how do you get liquidity along the way, especially now we've all learned that lesson, that something's better than nothing. You know, how along that way, how do you get liquidity? And then how do founders um, come to an agreement with their constituents, both employees and investors, and how they communicate it out clearly? Because I think the the wild west of the secondary market is probably not good for anyone either.
0: Yeah, that seems to have created some bad feelings where, maybe founders got to get some liquidity, but the team didn't, yep. wasn't, uh, or one, you know, team member,
1: one team member is, is emailing, you know, the half dozen or so secondary brokers trying to sell something that they may or may not be able to, therefore stirring up, you know, the rest of the engineering team about, you know, as they're, you know, searching on, you know, they're searching the used car market, um, with their other, with their other browser tab. So I think that only causes, um, it only causes noise in a system that already has so much noise. So anything. What's the right way to do it in terms I mean, of? secondary? I mean, if,
0: if, if there was a standard that could emerge, yeah, if, after if, this if you and I bust. said, "Hey,
1: we're doing this, we're doing this deal tomorrow," and I think we think we should be able to, uh, we think this is fair that early investors and early employees get liquidity along the way. Um, you know, you can do it in Carter. And say, hey, after you know four years, maybe from founding, or every two years, there's a regular time where yeah. you know, we'll set a price, no different than a tender offer, and we'll say. You know, Jason, you invested at a dollar. Now the company's worth $8 a share. Do you want to sell anything up to X percent of your holdings? And early employees who invested X percent, you know, who invested could sell up 20 percent of their holdings also. And, you know, it also gets rid of, you know, what was going on a little bit in the valley of people hopping around to, to create a basket of, of options because they mm-hmm. didn't have diversification. So I think that regular taking pressure ah, out, of, out of I the system. I never heard out. anybody
0: express it that way. Yeah, you did have people saying like, hey, listen, I've got Airbnb shares or Postmates shares. Maybe I want Uber shares. Maybe I want Google shares, whatever. I'll
1: go spend two years of Google, two years of Postmates, two years of Pinterest. And therefore, I'm going to build my basket by job hopping. And that's not good for anybody. But that's how those Mm -hmm. founders saw diversification in a world where there was no liquid market for their options.
0: So if it's on a regular cadence, it's transparent and it's equitable. uh, And Uh, uh, everybody gets a chance uh, to participate. uh, you know, you, you, and you, you and could you, be,
1: and you could differentiate yourself as an early stage company that you know we're seeing in the secondary market with all these brokers. You know, it's it's chaos now. As tons of people are looking for liquidity, there's very low bid volume. Um, but you know, coming out of this, if you could say, "Hey, one of the premises of our company is we believe you should have you know a regular access to to liquidity. It's not going to be for all your shares, and it's not going to be whenever you want. But that's the nature of being in a startup." but we're we're not going to make you wait like you had to 20 years ago for all of us to cross the finish line together when the lockup's over after the IPO. We're going to create regular release valves so you could buy that car, you could buy that house, and we could all be successful together.
0: Anything inherently wrong with the SPAC format going out? Uh, It's gotten a, a pretty big black eye now. All these SPACs were created, and a lot of them weren't able to find an acquisition, so they've been sort of shuttered but it did seem like a way to get public quick, and to engage the public markets. And we have so few companies going public that it, it did seem like it had a positive, uh, almost too positive reception with the retail maybe getting too excited about it. Is there anything inherently wrong with the format or that needs to improve? Um, and, uh, because it did seem to me like this could be a great way to uh, get more companies uh, available earlier to retail investors. But it almost seemed like it was a victim of its own success to me. It
1: was. I mean, it was a little bit, a lot of things in financial markets, It's if some's good, more is better up until the point where you, you just, you know, you, you stuff the turkey into a blur bursts. Yeah. And, you know, and that's what happened. And obviously, in a time of free money, that only happened at, a, at an accelerated pace. So I think mm-hmm. that the concept of a SPAC of, hey, we can, you could go public with a trusted partner, and you can control your shareholder base and tell a story in a more deliberate way. It's very helpful. And DraftKings was a great example of that in an interesting story that maybe took a little bit more unfurling and you wanted patient capital around for that was a wildly successful SPAC. And therefore, you know, it suited it well. Um, and I think there's going to be other companies where it suits it. But you have to still be able to tell your story crisply and clearly. You still be able to have to have a projectable business, especially in a, in a world where SPACs have projections. You want to be able to hit those numbers no different than any other company. And you want to be able to have the same attributes as a public company. And it shouldn't just be a loophole to be able to get let startups go public. Those attributes of being a public company should be the same for SPAC, um, as well as traditional and direct listing companies. It just should be slightly different in terms of maybe storytelling and the ability to pick your shareholder base.
0: Yeah. and I mean, if consumers are educated and the information is correct, I like the idea of consumers, theoretically, uh, retail investors being yeah. able to invest earlier in companies like we do, but they need to understand like this might not be, the, if this is a high, high, high risk bet you're making on vertical takeoff or landing
1: <laughs> Yes, you know devices, yeah. like they, they you've never been anything. in one,
0: like yeah. Joby, like you've never yeah. been in one of these. They don't exist in the real world for consumers yet, but boy, what an incredible thing to be able to place a bet on, but you might not want to place your kids you yeah know, uh college funds on it but you might want to put a one percent speculative bet on it if you think you can withstand that sure you could play venture capitalist by buying oh, yeah. a vertical takeoff and landing
1: company no, no different than angel investing you don't want to really risk anything in a single company you can't afford to lose but you could build a basket of these assets which should perform in the medium term especially if you if you understand the company and you've been thoughtful about the disclosures what are the
0: what are the the key things you look for in founders, uh, independent of market, up, no. down, left and right, but just over 30 years of doing this, what are the key attributes that you see across the successful founders?
1: I think it's grit is number one, that you know they've, they've been able to persist through adversity to success. And you know that's been proven, obviously, sometimes in serial founders, you've been able to see it in the startup world, but you've seen it in their life in some respect. It could be in athletics, it could be in chess, it could be whatever it is you've seen the ability for someone to face down adversarial conditions it could be you know immigrating to to the united states it could be you know they faced adversity and they they weren't rattled but they persisted to success despite that adversity the second is they really understand their market so mm-hmm. they understand where the competitive dynamics how people compete what are the economics of that unit economics of that business what are the unit economics on the on the industry and the whole and then what it, now that you understand, you, you know, you have a gritty person, to understand the market. What's your secret? Right. So mm-hmm. you have figured out something because in general, if there's a big market that's complex, there's enough smart people who understand how that market works. And there's enough smart people to start a business. But do you have that secret that will be the tip of the spear that will enable you to accelerate and learn something that other people might not know or other something might happen? You know, in, in case of Roe, to a certain extent, it was, you know, Viagra is coming off patent. So Mm -hmm. there's going to be an opportunity to private label, direct to consumer the most successful drug in the history of drugs. And therefore, um, you you know, the the customer acquisition economics matter and um, erectile dysfunction is a red light or an engine light for men's health. And that's an opportunity to begin to have a conversation in a reasonable way around that. And that was something before, you know, Hims mm-hmm. or Keeps understood exactly what was going on. They had the opportunity to be a first mover among the secret that not many people understood fully.
0: Fantastic. Really well said. What do you think about these direct listings? Is that the future of it as well? Now that they can raise capital with them, perhaps? Yeah.
1: Um, you know, the, these things are coming closer and closer together. So, you know, yeah. you know, direct listing that could raise capital needs an S1 and therefore needs bankers. How is that all that different than a traditional IPO? I know some people took a direct listing just because it wasn't a traditional IPO and it, it seemed cool. Um, but I, I, I've, you know, it's a, it tends to be a specific company. It tends to be a consumer company that's already built a brand. If you think about Spotify or, or Warby being in, in that kind of sense, it tends to be a company that generally doesn't need capital because I, if you know, it's if you're going to raise capital, it still feels like the traditional IPO is the way to go. So you don't need capital. You're profitable and you have a big enough war chest. You're of size that you're still going to get research coverage and people are still going to care. So you're over that couple billion dollar threshold. That if you if you go public on a direct listing and no one cares, you know you're never going to get a float. You're never going to be able to get liquid. You're never going to be able to raise capital again. And you know and and therefore in the medium term, no one's going to know the difference. Right? As long as in the first couple of years, you're going to have name recognition. You're going to have a critical mass of. Uh, of capital to get from here to there, so no financing risk, and you're going to have a float to be able to start acting like a public company. It doesn't matter, but the guys. But I heard a great, a great sense of like, here's all the ways to go public. But it's kind of like, you know, how you were born, and people say, you know, were you, No one, no one asked you after six months. You know, was a baby born via C-section or a traditional birth. You're just born, and I think yeah. you know, after three or four, years, maybe even two years of these companies, you know, people don't remember. Warby Parker was a direct listing, DraftKings was a SPAC, and Airbnb was a traditional IPO. They're just public companies.
0: Yeah, and and great companies at that, resilient companies that seem to be fighting through this. Listen, uh, a great hour. (laughs) Uh, Well done uh, on your first appearance on This Week in Startups, and we'll love to have you back. Uh, Keep fighting the good fight out there. And uh, you are investing also early, so seed stage investments all the way to later stage best way for folks to contact you if they've at, rick. at, 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 at rick. rick
1: you already gave a plug at, at rick uh, yeah. on twitter, on twitter. Or, you know uh rick at firstmarkcap.com which is a little, amazing a little bit more complex yeah all right
0: well done and uh, awesome. we'll see you all next time yeah
1: thank you very much good well good done time. great job